You know, the Lord is the uh, ultimate doctor. He is the great physician. Amen. Uh, now, one thing we notice that in uh, the world we're living in today, that they are in medicine, they are practicing medicine. Now we know why they're practicing medicine. There's a lot to learn, right? Well, Jesus, he is the perfect surgeon. He is the great physician. And he is a, he's never right or never wrong on his diagnosis and always right on what he tells us to do about things. And we have a huge problem in the world. And we have a heart problem. All of us, collectively, uh, we have a heart problem before we come to Jesus. And that's a problem that we have in the world. Uh, you look around what's going on in the world, it's absolutely nuts, absolutely crazy. doesn't matter where you at, you ha- you're at, you pretty much have to be careful. And the minute you think you let your guard down, you need to pay attention, right? The Bible says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So even if you think somebody from without is safe, you gotta watch your own heart, amen? Because when he says, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall, that's not the context of other people, that's in the context of our own problem. That's after Paul talked about dealing with himself and what about God wiping out so many of the Israelites after they were saved from the promised land and later were destroyed because of their sin. And we have to just, you know, we put locks on our, we have locks on our homes, right? You probably, lock, how many of you lock your car when you, uh, don't raise your hand because then they'll know the people that did it. And if there's a thief here, he'll be like in the business, right? Just have to lock, you know, know whose car is what. Well, we're pretty good here. You know, I think there's no Judas's here, but who knows? Uh, but, you know, the disciples didn't even know their own hearts. When Jesus said to them that there will be one here that betrays me, none of them said, Judas, right? I, I knew it. No, they were like, is it I? You know? And to say it is I is a good thing because God gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. We need to recognize our weaknesses and recognize uh, that we're not perfect and that we're capable of falling. Amen? And at the same time, we want to make sure we know who we are in the Lord and that we have confidence that it's our desire to follow him and to continue following him, amen? But you don't want to get Peter, like Peter, where he didn't need to pray like he thought the others did because they all may forsake you. He said, but I would never do that, Jesus. And he falls on his face, unlike any of the other disciples, uh, save for Judas, who actually betrayed Jesus. So I want to talk about how to have a good heart. How to have a good heart. It almost sounds like bad theology. Some believe, well, you can't have a good heart, you know? The Bible says the heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, how can you have a good heart? However, I think it's horrible theology to say you can't get a good heart. Now, I believe that there are t- texts that we look at in the, in the scripture, but we need to understand and how they harmonize together. I quote Jeremiah 17:9: the heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it more than... I'd say probably 95% of pastors. I probably quote as much as Calvinistic pastors, you know, because I recognize the depravity of man and uh, that we can't put our trust in ourselves and that we're capable of all kinds of evil. I mean, the capacity within yourself, believe it or not, to do horrendous evil is there uh, in your flesh. And, uh, and when you say, man, I can't believe that person did that, the capacity is within your own flesh as well. The question is, is, Uh, will you allow your flesh to run amok? And will you have a new heart or not? So it's important that we understand how important the heart is. I remember uh, after, you know, in 2020, uh, I didn't know my heart was racing 100 miles an hour for like six months straight, you know? And after being in uh, Mexico and helping build and getting a little more tired than normal, but kept pressing on to help build the house and hammering and everything. And when I was on the way home, I don't usually ask my wife to drive, but I was like, man, I'm wiped out, you know, can you, can you drive the rest of the way home? You know, after driving for a few hours, she said, sure. And then we'd find out later, a few months after that, that I was an AFib and my heart was just going like crazy, but it was silent AFib. I didn't know it. Thankfully, I asked my doctor because I was at the, uh, you know, I was, I was, trying to give blood, and they said they can't take it because my heart's off a beat. You might check that out. I should have checked that out sooner. But thankfully, as I was going out, I go, hey, can you check my heart? And my doctor goes, checks it. He goes, you're an AFib, Joe. This is serious. And then I realized, ah, he goes, it's been since they told me to get my heart checked, which was about six months earlier. Of course, I don't want to go into the whole story, but you know, they told me I wasn't going to survive. If I got COVID, I got COVID a week later. But again, they're practicing medicine, and I survived by the grace of God. And the thing is, is your heart is very, very important. But sometimes people think when the Bible's talking about our hearts being righteous and stuff, they think, oh, it's, it's talking about our physical heart. 
No, it's not talking about your physical heart, okay? It's not talking about our physical heart. He's talking about the core of your being, the control center of who you are, uh, that part of your being from which motives uh, and uh, decisions are made, you know? And the Bible tells us very clearly, and we know from human experience, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We have a heart problem in this country. And all have sinned, right? It's 100%. Everybody's got this heart problem. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Amen? And th- there's none that are righteous. No, not one. And just before the flood, we read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every, this is heavy, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Now, you can go to Genesis with me because I want to look at one more verse there. But that's in the days of Noah. What did Jesus say it would be like in the end days? In the end of days, it was going to be like the days of what? Noah. So people would have hearts like that again. You say, wow, we're getting to that point where people's hearts are like that again. I can see it all over. But guess what? It was that way right after the flood as well. Just they needed to populate and corrupt the world still because that's what humans do because of our wicked uh, race we are as human beings. Uh, Genesis chapter 8. Go to Genesis chapter 8, verse 21. The Lord smelled, the, this is after they got out of the ark and Noah offered sacrifice. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never curse the ground on account of man or the intent of man, for what? For the intent of man's heart is what? Evil from his what? His youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Well, it's gonna get close. It's gonna get close. It's gonna get really close because... Uh, Jesus said, unless he would come back, no living thing would, nothing would live, amen, his second coming. Uh, Although that's, a lot of that has to do with not wrath, although there'll be a lot of wrath at that time, but tribulation. Tribulation and wrath are different things. As Christians, we're not appointed appointed to wrath, amen. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says we are appointed to tribulation. Wrath is God's anger displayed against the wicked who are not cleansed by the blood of Christ. He corrects us, but not with wrath. As many as I love, I rebuke and what? Chasten. As believers, we're chastened by the Lord, so we're not condemned with the world. But the wicked is under the wrath of the Lord. Amen. He's angry with the wicked every day, it says. His wrath is, and, and, and you say, well, why does God have to be wrathful? Well, if you wanted God not to be a wrathful God, then you'd have to expunge him of his righteousness. Because God's wrath is his righteousness. It's his reaction to wickedness, okay? And if there's no righteous God, then there would be full anarchy, and you can't expunge God anyway. He's infinite, eternal, unchanging being, amen? And thankfully, he is righteous, and thankfully, he does uh, uh, punish the wicked. But the cool thing is, he's slow to, he's slow to judgment, amen? He's slow to wrath. He's, he's abounding in loving kindness. He's patient. That's what it says. And uh, he wants to forgive, even though people don't deserve it. He wants to forgive. He has mercy, it says, over all of his works. Praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Aren't you gr- grateful that he just doesn't have mercy on a few? He has mercy on all of his works. Well, well wait a minute. He only says he'll show mercy unto whom he has, wants to show mercy. That's right, Romans 9. But go to Romans eleven thirty six. He's shut up all, all into condemnation that he, may show, that he might show mercy to all. The same that will shut up the condemnation, there's a parallel there, are the ones he wants to show mercy to. But not everybody will receive mercy because God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And many refuse to bow the knee. The Bible says the judgments of the Lord are in the earth that the nations may learn righteousness. But some learn righteousness, some repent, and some, you know, their hearts just get harder. We want to make sure that our hearts are not those that are getting harder. In fact, that verse, the heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? The NET version, the NET version says, beyond cure. We can't cure our own hearts. And from youth, you know, from when people are young, their hearts are evil continually. So it's important to understand, it's like, why doesn't the government fix everything? The government can't fix the heart, it's beyond cure. And by the way, when you have a government, you have people in government, and people are the problem, right? So we can't pull our hair out. We have to know that we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The Lord is the answer, amen? Now we could pray for leaders and godly leaders. We ought to be doing that. First Timothy chapter 2, the first few verses, tells us to pray for those who are in authority over us, amen? Uh, because uh, that way we can preach the gospel with tranquility, have peace, and that's going to affect our freedoms, your prayer life. 
It affects whether you, and a lot of people rant, and they complain, and they whine and everything else, but they don't pray. I'd probably say 90-some plus percent of Christians that are whining about government situations probably don't pray for the leaders. And I have to admit, sometimes it's hard for me to pray for certain leaders. I'm just being honest with you. It's, I, I, I'm like, because they seem just so bent on evil. But then I realize, okay, they need my prayer even more. And I'm commanded to pray for them. And Lord, help me have your heart and pray for those that are in need. And plus, I know also it says right after verses 1 through 3, after he says pray for them so we can have peace and share the gospel. Verse 4, he says, God wills that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. Amen. So we want to have hearts for those who are wicked. And I remember that I, before I knew Jesus, was a wicked person doing my own thing and was very anti-God. So we are depraved. We are depraved, you know. That's the one point of the five points of Calvinism that we almost adhere to. I say almost. Total depravity. Uh, We don't believe in total depravity, though, even the way our Calvinistic brothers and sisters do. We have... Um, we have a lot of Calvinists that love our ministry. And I'm blown away because they know that I speak against Calvinism and Reformed doctrine because I believe there needs to be correction in the church more than just about any pastor, yet we have Reformed people that love our ministry. In fact, at the men's retreat, we had a pastor there that has, has been Reformed and loves our ministry that's been ministered to it for like 20 years almost, you know. And it was just a blessing having him. And he's come out of the Calvinism to a degree, a big degree. Uh, there were a couple others, another Reformed guy that was there and another guy that was studying tulip, going to a gospel coalition church, which was reformed and so forth, but not fully sold out to it, but studying the tulip and so forth. And we get feedback. And I love my Calvinistic brothers, and I love the people that are reformed, that love Jesus. I just believe it's a family dispute that we need to talk about. How loving is our God? You know, does he truly want all to be saved or does he not? Does he truly have no pleasure in the death of the wicked or does he have some? Does he truly desire that none would perish with all can repentance? Or is that really not true because he has a secret will where he really wants to damn most and there's crocodile tears, you know? And I think because, I think why there's some respect is because I look at a lot of my reformed brothers, a lot of them fear God, a lot of them love the word of God, a lot of them are genuine Christians that love Jesus. I believe there's a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ and sometimes we write everybody off and I've never been one that wrote, oh, you're pre-trib, therefore you're not saved. Wrong. That sister that was in this fellowship for some time said she didn't believe if you were pre-trib, you were saved. And I'm like, how can you say that, you know? That's so wrong, you know? And then I had to show her that I go, wait a minute, you went to a pre-trib church before you came to this church, right? Yeah. I go, come on, think about it, you know? You became post-trib after you started seeing the scriptures more clearly. She goes, yeah. I go, when did you get saved? Is that when you got saved, when you accepted pre-trib in your heart or post-trib in your heart? She's like, okay, I got it. You're right. <laughs> Give me a break. Now, there's some Calvinist. I just got a couple books sent to me by a Calvinist who publishes, I don't know if he publishes his own books or not, and it's, he sent them to me. I'm like, I'll check them out. I unwrap them. I can't spend my time reading these huge books because I'm already reading 1,001 books uh, because right in the back of the book, it says anybody who believes that you have a free choice is damned to hell and can't be saved. It's not a child of God. I go, oh, wow. <laughs> so all of our choices are determined by God, and therefore God blames us for things we couldn't help but do and so forth. And I don't think he's even really wrestled with the implications of his doctrine. And so there's Calvinists that don't believe you're saved until you receive John Calvin into your heart, you know? And that's, that's just messed up, you know? But I, I, but I don't believe, uh, but I believe there's a lot of genuine Christians that, that, you know, have been influenced by John Calvin. And we need to lovingly, agree to disagree, but not to agree to disagree and then just leave it there. I think we need to discuss these things. Amen? And see what the whole counsel of God says. See what's taught in the early church. You know, first and foremost, thus saith the scripture, but then also, what's the witness of church history? If I don't see your doctrine anywhere for 1,500 years or until the first real Roman Catholic theologian hundreds of years later, you might think there's a problem. So, but, so my Calvinistic, but guess what? I'd much rather have a Calvinist that says people are totally depraved right, than a humanist that, or a Christian that believes that people don't really need Jesus to die for their sins and pay for them because we're really not that bad, okay? Now, where we disagree with the, the Calvinistic doctrine of total depravity is the Calvinist believes that, that our depravity is such that we can't put our faith in Jesus. It's impossible until we're first born again. So first you're born again, then saved, and then later you hear the gospel sometime. Calvin said that some are born again from babyhood. They baptized babies. They didn't believe, he didn't believe, some of them did, but he didn't believe baptism saved you necessarily. But they did teach uh, that 
there were babies that are hateful to God that he dooms from the womb, and they die not, not like babies, and they, just like Augustine taught. Augustine taught they went to damnation, uh, and then Calvin taught the same thing, that unlike babies are damned. That's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, I challenge you to show me one verse that says babies, when they die, go to hell. You can't find it. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Although we do recognize children are born with a sinful nature, amen? So there's, uh, we believe that, that that human nature, that fallen nature, is communicated, the, the sin of Adam, to each of us. And we each have a sinful nature. We do not believe that we inherit, we get condemned because of what Adam did. Okay? We don't believe babies are condemned and therefore need to be saved as a baby and be baptized to go to heaven, which is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, that because of original sin, they got Adam's condemnation. The Bible says, let no one say that the children's teeth are set on edge because of the sin of their parents. Amen? The Bible says each one will answer to, he goes on to say that each one will answer to their own sin. So, but also we don't believe that, uh, we believe that the objective isn't to make people as wicked as they could possibly be. Mankind is not as wicked as he could possibly be, okay? The Bible says evil men will wax worse and worse, amen? Children, as they get older, can become harder and harder. The Bible talks about how your heart can become hardened, okay? In fact, Paul said, see, some of our Calvinistic brothers and sisters, they teach that babies are born hating God. They just come out of the womb hating God, you know? You ever see a little two-year-old baby talking, I hate God, I haven't seen that, but, you know, maybe some of them do, but I don't know about all of them, you know. In fact, I've known, how many of you have taught Sunday school? How many know a lot of little kids before they didn't even know what it means to really be born again? Love God. Love the one who made them. Love the one who made their mommy and daddy, amen. Isn't that precious? Of such are the kingdom of God. And it's actually beautiful. However, the apostle Paul talked about, and Paul recognized that, guess what? In Adam, you know, we're, you know the Bible talks about how we're all sinners in Adam. I mean, as a result of uh, being his offspring, we have this sinful nature. Although Paul said in Romans 7, 11, that there was a time when he was alive. But then when he became aware of his sin, right? He became conscious of the law and the law made him, thou shalt not covet and so forth, right? Made him aware that he was a sinner because we're born sinners for sure. We're not held accountable for our sin until a certain point though. Paul says without the sin, Without the law, sin is dead. But he became aware of the law. He said he what? Do you remember? He died. Did Paul die physically? No. What way did he die? Spiritually. So little kids, we don't believe they have to be born again. When you're a year old, like you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. If you died, you're going to hell. No, we believe if they die, they go straight to heaven. Amen? Because they're alive until they become aware that they're in defiance of God to one degree or another. We don't know what age that is. But then that little child becomes aware of God's law, and now he has to make a choice to fear God. Proverbs kicks in and recognize his sin and his need for the Messiah and get saved, or they'll get harder and harder as they get older, and their depravity will grow. So we believe in extensive, in the totality of depravity in the sense that it's affected every part of our being from head to toe. It's affected our heart. The heart's deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So we need a new heart. That's a big problem. Now, like I said, there's many others who will say, in the name of what they think is right theology, that there's no way you can have a right heart. There's no way you can have a good heart. There's no way you can have a pure heart because the heart's deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And that's what the Bible says. Really? It does say that, but look at the context. In Jeremiah chapter 17, he's talking to those who had been a rebellion to God, okay? Chapter 17, verse 1, he talks about the sin in their lives is like, well, let's go there. Jeremiah 17, 9, or 17, 1. Long before you just get to 17, 9, look at chapter 17, verse 1. Jeremiah 17, 1. The sin of Judah is written down with what? An iron stylus with a diamond point. By the way, the only time you'll find the word diamond that means diamond from the Hebrew in the entire Bible is right here. With a diamond point, it is engraven upon the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. I mean, their sin is so strong. And that's why I believe he says in 79, a few verses later, 
The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's NSB. I have it memorized since I was a young kid in Christ. I should say young kid. I was like born again at 18, so sometime after that from the King James Version, which I used at the time. I still have that in my memory. So uh, he's talking about those whose sin is like deep in their hearts, like a diamond, bam. They're just like, is that, is that the way it is for the believer? Is that describing the born-again believer? No. Now, guess what? Before we're born again, yes. This is before the new covenant, before they had received the Holy Spirit of promise, amen, before they experienced the fullness of the gospel. When they're under the law, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus, John 1, 17. So I believe that God gives us a new heart. In fact, in Jeremiah 31, let's go there. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, look what he says. They will not teach uh, again each man his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will what? And their sin, I will what? Remember no more. Isn't that interesting? That's 31:34. Uh, now it's interesting. Look what he says in verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the Son. By, well, you know what? Let's back up to 33. But this is the new covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put what? My law within them and on their what? Heart, I will write it. Ha! So instead of that diamond plate point sweated sin that's just stuck in the heart, man, and, and you can't remove it because it's, inc- it's incurable, 17.9, he's going to write his law on our hearts. On their heart, I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, it's interesting because... Ultimately, this, this will be ultimately fulfilled when Israel's rebirth as a nation and so forth. But we have already in the gospel, when Jesus comes, we have the already not yet. And when the new, the new covenant, as we know, comes when Jesus comes, amen? He comes with the new covenant. And in Romans or in Hebrews chapter 8, this passage is actually quoted at length. Hebrews 8 verses 7 through 13. That he, because that he, the author of Hebrews says, talks about the new covenant has come. He's writing his law, he's written his law in our hearts now, and so forth. And then in chapter 10, he quotes Jeremiah 31 again, so we understand that, guess what? The new covenant has been inaugurated through Christ's blood, amen? Through his death, burial, and resurrection, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we become not only his his law in our hearts, but it's written by the power of his Holy Spirit. We become new creations, amen? His law is now in our hearts. But what does that mean, that we just have his law written in our hearts? Well, the world has some semblance of the moral law of God written in their hearts through their consciences, amen? There's a difference from having a knowledge of the law, what's right and wrong, to one degree or another based on your conscience, which can be seared, and having the Holy Spirit living in you, and the Lord God, and by his Spirit dictating to you what it means to follow the Lord and those statutes, because the Holy Spirit resurrects our consciences and gives us insight and understanding that we would, could not have without the Holy Spirit. But before we're Christians, we can't please God. Romans 8, 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh, it says, cannot please God. Now, Jeremiah talks about how sick we are, but he talks about this new covenant and that something was going to happen in the heart. Ezekiel does the same thing. Ezekiel does the same thing. And this is important because in John chapter 3, that's when Jesus said to Nicodemus, who came to him by night, who was the teacher of Israel, not a teacher of Israel. It says, Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel? You don't know these things? And he tells Nicodemus, and Nicodemus says, we know you're from God, Jesus, because nobody can do all these miracles unless he's from God. And Jesus, instead of getting into a big discussion about miracles, because <laughs> Nicodemus is just, wow, we know you're from God. Let's talk about these miracles. You're doing your credentials. He cuts the chase to Nicodemus and says, to him, you must be born again to inherit the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus wants to know, you know, how he can, you know. And just before that, in chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Jesus says, you must be born of water and of spirit to enter the kingdom of God. And he said, that which is born of the flesh, right after that is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Because Nicodemus says, well, what, I need to come out of my mother's womb all over again? Probably being facetious. He's saying that which is born of flesh is flesh. Okay, that's the watery birth. But you must also be born of what? 
spirit. You need to be regenerated. You need to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, how did coming out of my mother's womb again? And Jesus says, you be the teacher of Israel, don't understand these things. And he, there's a lot more going on there, but he basically explains to Nicodemus how to be born again. How to be born again. And that's key to having a new heart. And you want to make sure you are born again, because if you're not, you won't enter the kingdom of God. You have to have the key into heaven, and that's the work of Jesus in your heart through being born again. Or you won't get anywhere. You could do as many good things and try to have a good heart and all that thing. You can't even give yourself a new heart. Well, doesn't it say in Ezekiel, get a new, give your, get a new heart? You have a part in a place in accepting a new heart from him. You have to make a decision, but it's him that gives you the new heart. That's the key. I was all ready for Bible study, you know, excited about getting here for worship and everything. And I knew I brought my keys in. Oh, there they are. Now, I knew I had my keys, but I couldn't find them, you know. And I'm all over the place, you know. And I thought Lisa had already left without me. And I'm like, where'd they go? If she left without me, I'm not even going to be able to get there. The key to getting there is my keys. And I'm looking all over the place. And I go outside of my truck, and I, it's locked. I go, I know it's not in my, but I just drove with Lisa because we did a wedding rehearsal. You know, we'd have to do a wedding tomorrow. So I was like, okay, sure, car's there. Yeah, I saw her in there, and she's looking for my keys and everything. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to drive with her. Now we're both running late. And she goes, I, I come back in, and then she goes, I got them. She found my keys. I didn't even say where were they because she goes, I grabbed them off my, the, the counter. I thought they were mine. <laughs> And she put them in her purse, you know. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you, baby. No big deal, you know. Anyway, I need my keys to get here, you know. Well, you need a new heart, man. You need to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. How does that happen? John 3, 15, a few verses later, he tells him Nicodemus would understand this. Remember, he talks about as, you know, Moses lifted up the uh, serpent in the wilderness, so you're, the Son of Man shall be lifted up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. And he would know. Born again means you need to have new life. The wilderness, they were complaining and whining against Yahweh and he had them struck with a bunch of serpents in the wilderness as they were whining and complaining and they were dying. They were as good as dead. Yet the serpent that was erected in the wilderness, which I believe is a picture of God's wrath because it was his wrath inflicting death upon them, was put on the cross. The very one that was judging them would himself take the bite of the serpent or the poison or the wrath that they deserved, the Messiah. And what did they have to do to be healed? Does anybody remember? They had to look. If they would look, it wasn't like, okay, man, if you run around for 30 minutes and you bow down 50 times and you do this, you do that, I'll forgive you. No. You just look and recognize, acknowledge you're a sinner and recognize that you need the provision for my sin. Humble yourself. God gives grace to the humble. And as many as looked at the serpent on the pole, what happened? They were healed and they received new life. They could get up. Like, it was miraculous. Nicodemus, you know how they had to look to have life? For God so loved the world, Nicodemus, that whoever believes in him, whoever looks to him, shall not perish but have what? Eternal life. By the way, what happens first? The look or the life? The look. Don't let people tell you, you must be born again. Then you can come to faith sometime later or maybe just after. Everywhere the Bible talks about repentance unto life. Amen? You never see life unto repentance. It's not you're born again, then you can repent. You know? It's always believe and thou shalt be saved. Not hopefully you'll get saved and God will just regenerate you sometime and then you'll believe. And by, by the way, I just saw something. I, this was probably eight months ago or so. I printed it off and gave it to Brother Nico. Uh, who's going to Master's College, and it's John MacArthur uh, giving this long, not long, but a great answer, actually, against the idea that you need to be born again before you can actually put faith in Jesus, which is contrary to what's taught over there, you know? And he was actually, I'm like, wow, you know? I don't know when he said it. It might have been years ago. I don't know, but he was, it was like, he was almost you know, like a foolish thing, like, of course the Bible teaches you have to have faith before you can be regenerated. I don't know where people get this kind of thing, and he gave it to him, so I thought it might do him handy because... You know, he's over there, you know. I go, this is actually what John MacArthur said here is actually really good. It just seems to contradict their theology right now, but it's actually a good statement he made, you know. So the Bible is very clear over and over again. 
you know, godly, worldly sorrow leads to death, but godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life. Amen. We won't be born again until we put our trust in Jesus. Look to him. So we have to get these new hearts. And he tells Nicodemus, you being the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, you don't understand these things. Come on, you're the teacher of Israel. Should Nicodemus have understood that? Yeah. Because in Ezekiel eleven twenty one, like Jeremiah, talks about the heart being just terrible and needing to be changed. It's not, the law doesn't change your heart. The law will convict you and show you how wicked you are. Ezekiel eleven twenty one. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. So he talks about the hearts of Israel, how their hearts are, they go after detestable things and abominations. And the Bible says that which you worship, you become like, you become like your idols. So their hearts became detestable. Their hearts became abominable. But thankfully, guess what the Lord promised through Ezekiel the prophet to the Jews before Jesus came on the scene as bringing the, the new heart. And I'm telling you right now, when Jesus died on the cross and he rose again, he died and rose again, not only to forgive you of your sins, but to give you a new heart. When you're like, man, I need forgiveness, look to the cross. We're like, okay, I have forgiveness, but now I need strength. You know, again, look to the cross. And I'm going to tell you the key where the victory is and how the victory, just not only for forgiveness of sins is at the cross, but also for a new heart is at the cross. And that's an important key I want you to leave with today because I want us to have greater and greater victory over sin. And a lot of people are missing the key. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. Moreover, I will give you, this is awesome. This is God through Ezekiel. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Isn't that awesome? And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. I love that, man. I love that. That's just so beautiful. That's Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 36 and 37. Now, Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 and 20 and I will give them one heart and a new spirit. And I will put within them and I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Sound familiar? The Lord basically says the same thing twice. He wants us to understand. So when people say, no, no, all Christians, we have deceitful hearts. That's what we could just got to rely on God's forgiveness. He says that he will give us a what? New heart. What will he do with the old heart? He'll get rid of it, amen? He says, I'll give them what new heart, he says. I'll put that in them. I'll remove the heart of stone. That's verses, verse 19 of Ezekiel 11. I'm sorry. Uh, that's verse 19 of chapter 11. And then verse 26 of chapter 36. I'll give you a new heart. And he goes on to say, I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. You guys. He's telling us he's going to get rid of that heart that's deceitful of all things that desolate wicked. Who can know it? And give us brand new hearts. That's a promise you need to bank on. That's a promise you need to trust the Lord for. But then you say, but wait a minute. How come I still struggle with unforgiveness and jealousy sometimes and envy and anger and, and temptation and so forth? Because there is a spiritual war you are in. And we're all in that war. And we're talking about how to have victory in that war. Okay, my prayer before this message has been for some time now that always is this though, is Lord, help the message to be life transforming. I'm always praying that. Help to exalt Christ in the message to you be glorified and transform our hearts. But <laughs> this is literally, you know, transform our hearts, Lord. And it's interesting because you have to understand that the human heart, even among the religious people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, right? They were all accusing Jesus of breaking the law of Moses, you know? And they, because they had a lot of traditions that they had, you know, that they kind of tied in the law of Moses. If you didn't keep their traditions, you were somehow also breaking the law of Moses. And, and Jesus talked about their hand-washing tradition, and he talked to them about your real problem is your heart, to the religious leaders. And in Matthew chapter 15, verse 17, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes through the stomach and is eliminated? Because they're upset with Jesus' disciples because they were eating grain, right? Without washing their hands, they're going through the field and they decide to eat some grain. But then they go through the ritual of washing their hands and everything. And uh, verse 18, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, Jesus says. That's the real issue. And those defile the man. It's what comes out of here. 
that defiles a man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. It might make you physically sick, but it's not going to defile your spirituality. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. So this is very interesting because Jesus tells his apostles in the Sermon on the Mount near the very beginning of it in chapter 5, verse 20, about, listen to this, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Unless their righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, they won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Remember the saying that was back from the first century? There was an old saying that if only two people go into heaven, well, one will be a scribe and the other one will be a Pharisee. Now Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you're not getting in. Wow. How can our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Two ways. First and foremost, the righteousness that Jesus ultimately wants is perfection before God, which we could never have apart from what? What Jesus did on the cross and paying for our sins. Amen. We are now robed in his righteousness. All of our garments were as what? Filthy rags, right? But now we receive the garments of salvation. And Paul said, not that it would be found in my own righteousness, but that it would be found in his righteousness, the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, around verse 9. So our righteousness is now based on what Jesus did because he died on the cross and rose again, amen? He forgives us of our sins. Now the scribes and Pharisees, the most righteous among them, could not enter God's kingdom because they need to be forgiven, amen? They couldn't get in. But now you can get in, why? Because you've been forgiven your sins. God's cleansed you of all unrighteousness through what Jesus did on the cross and dying for every one of your sins. Now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Those who are looking to Christ Jesus, those who are trusting in him. There's no condemnation for us. But guess what? Our righteousness also exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees in that they had what? Their hearts, Jesus said, were like tombs. Outwardly, he said, they were like beautiful tombs. They looked nice. But inwardly, Jesus said, they're like dead man's bones, man. They're like death. Because they had hearts that were deceitful above, above all things. Who can know it? They were not made righteous either, uh, either uh, positionally because of what Jesus did on the cross or practically because the Holy Spirit wasn't living in them and they were not new creations and they weren't given new hearts. But guess what? When you come to Christ, you are born again. I tell you sometimes, we are in double trouble without Jesus, right? A lot of people think we just need to be born again. That's one problem. No, there's two huge problems. We need to be forgiven of our sins, amen, because we're guilty. But guess what? We don't simply need to just be forgiven. We need to be what? We have fallen or wicked or evil hearts that need to be changed, that need to be transformed, amen? Because we are guilty because of our sin, but we also have a wicked, rebellious, sinful nature that needs to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Amen? So we're double trouble, but the double cure begins at the cross. It begins at the cross. And we've emphasized being born again so far a little bit, but also what about that new heart on a practical level that we're talking about here? Well, we can get a new heart and a good heart if we respond to the work of the Holy Spirit and the work he wants to do in our hearts by transforming them, by drawing us. He convicts chapter 16, verse 8 of John. The Holy Spirit will convict Jesus, said the world of what? Sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. Amen? Jesus in John 1, 9, it says, enlightens the heart of everyone that comes in the world. He lightens our hearts. The Holy Spirit convicts our hearts. He shows us our need to repent, and he gives us the strength to repent and put our trust in him. In fact, you remember the parable of the four soils? The first three soils were damned. They, they rejected the Messiah either right away or in time. But guess what? What about the fourth soil? Listen to this. As for the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So when you come to the Lord and you're one of those four soils and you embrace the seed, you're born again, Amen. And he gives you a new heart. He gives you a good heart, a heart that wants to do what's right. You want to be in fellowship. You want to read his word. Oh, you may not be perfect at it. No one is, amen? You want to please God now. And you, want, and you bear fruit with patience. But how does that heart get changed? 
Well, he tells us, just like those wicked sinners who were complaining and whining on their way out of, even though they should have been thankful, man, I can't believe we don't have to serve Pharaoh anymore. We're going to the promised land. And they're all like, just seeing what's before them and just get caught up in it and just all whining and complaining against God and stuff. And then, hey, let's put a serpent on a pole. God's got a plan. Boom. Then their hearts were changed. They're, 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 they were physically made alive. I should say their hearts were changed. They were brought to life. But with us, we're born again. And if anyone be in Christ, the Bible says, when we're born again, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone's, uh, if anyone's in Christ, he's a what? A new creation. Does it say some things or most things or all things have passed away? Old, the, the old things have passed, I'm sorry, old things have passed away. And what has become new? All things have become new. Is your heart one of those all things? Absolutely. And well, how does that happen? Well, when you put your faith in Jesus and look to him for your salvation, listen to this, Acts 15, 19. And he made no distinction between us and them, meaning Jews and Gentiles. Having, listen to this, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Catch that? He forgives our sins, but he also what? Cleanses our hearts. He gives us new hearts in the new covenant. Are you with me? He puts his spirit within us. He writes his statutes. And he gives us new hearts. I love it. Well, Romans 6, 17, listen to this. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin, that's how we used to be, we were slaves to sin, became obedient, listen to this, became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So we're born again, man. We became obedient from the heart. Listen to 2 Timothy 1.5, one of my favorite verses in, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 1.5. I don't know, I wrote, I wrote down 2 Timothy, but it's 1 Timothy 1.5. It's one of my favorite verses in 1 Timothy because Paul sums up the goal of their instruction. He says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. Love from a pure heart. And a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction, what's the goal of your instruction, Paul? What's the apostolic instruction to us as believers? The goal of our instruction, the first thing he mentions is love from a pure heart. Don't tell me that the heart of the believer is still deceitful above all things and desperate wicked who can know it anymore. That's what the heart can become like again. But by the way, when Jesus said, lest your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You know what he also said in Matthew 5? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. Amen. Now, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Are you with me, guys? This is New Testament teaching. He wants us to have pure hearts. He wants us to have good hearts. Amen? He wants us to follow him. Now, go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. It says, now flee. And Paul's talking to Timothy, who's pretty young. He says, no one, let no one despise your youth. But here in verse 22, he says, now flee from youthful lust." Flee these youthful lusts, these youthful desires to go contrary to God's will. And pursue what? So you guys, you can't just say, oh Lord, help me, I want to stay away from those things. That's great to pray that. But you also should be pursuing something, amen? You don't just stand still. Flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a what? Pure heart. It's not hypothetical. That means there's other people I'm supposed to pursue righteousness, right? Faith, peace, and all these things with. Who are they? Those who have what? Pure hearts. That means there's other believers out there with pure hearts, amen? And I need to hang out with them. In fact, look what he says. We're supposed to not pursue youthful lust, but pursue righteousness. Okay, what are we doing? We're pursuing righteousness right now. That's what this whole Bible says on, right? We want the righteousness of Christ that comes righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, forgiveness. They want the new hearts that are that are that beat with a desire to do God's will and live righteously. So we're pursuing righteousness, faith, that's trust in Jesus, love. We talk about love from a pure heart, peace, shalom, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And here we are today. Amen. Or you're in the live stream audience, hopefully, you know, you're with a bunch of other people that are in that audience as well. Many of them fellowship together, which is beautiful, really beautiful to see. We had this wonderful men's retreat recently. Uh, we just went there and to Massachusetts and landed in Connecticut. First Chicago layover, went to Connecticut, then Massachusetts. There were like 41 guys there, they told me. And it's just guys from like 10 different states and outside the states and from Bahamas and stuff. And guess what, man? We were a bunch of young, bunch of young men, no, some old men like me, you know, bunch of men, <laughs> 
crying out to the Lord in song, and, and, uh, but pursuing righteousness, and faith, and love, peace with those with pure hearts that really want to serve God. And here we are this evening doing the same thing. And it's a beautiful thing. Oh, how blessed it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Amen. So it's important that we get this, important that we understand this. So our hearts are cleansed through faith. So understand how this works. We as believers should know these things. We get into, did you notice I don't tell, like, I might tell a little story here and there. I'm sure I do, and I might give an illustration here and there and be a little playful here and there. But guess what? Most of our Bible studies are just that. Sunday or Wednesday or whenever, we're in the Word, amen? You're getting the Word, and that's what transforms us, amen? And I don't apologize for that, because that's what changes us, and that's how we learn. So it's like, how do we get a new heart? Well, we're, our hearts are cleansed through what? Through faith, amen? They're cleansed through faith. But guess what? Now we have to watch our hearts after we get these new hearts. We get born again. We get these new hearts. The Holy Spirit comes and gives us hearts of flesh. He removes that heart of stone. Amen? But what happens to the heart of stone? And can we pick that stone back up again? You can. He tells us to watch out for that. But in Hebrews chapter 3, if you go there, we're told how important fellowship is. And I want to mention fellowship for a few minutes because in Hebrews 2, he says, you're not supposed to f- desire or seek after these, fulfill these lusts, but you're supposed to pursue righteousness, right? Faith, love, you know, peace, these things with those who crowd the Lord with pure heart. In other words, fellowship is critical for your spiritual well-being and for your heart to be right with the Lord, to continue to be right, that is. In Hebrews chapter 3, if you look at Hebrews 3, look at verse 6. Verse 6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. Okay, we're the body of Christ. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit now. We're Christ's house, and we're, we're, we're stones in the house, and whose house we are. If we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end, then verse 8, do not harden your what? Do not harden your heart. Well, who's he talking about there? Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy who? Holy brethren. So, holy brethren, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me and in the day of trial in the wilderness. Wow. We got to watch our hearts. Look at verse 12. Take care of who? Brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Okay, you got to watch your heart. Your heart could become hardened by sin. Did you know there were people in this fellowship years ago? that had hearts for the Lord and cried out to the Lord with a pure heart with everybody else, but then somehow something slipped in between them and someone else or, or they gave into temptation or whatever and their hearts were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and they're no longer in fellowship anymore and they're in huge trouble. My heart breaks for them. I pray for anybody who's ever stepped among our fellowship and known Jesus because it's worse after knowing the way of righteousness to go back to the vomit. So, but what does he want us to do so that doesn't happen? Look at verse 13, but encourage one another. How often? But encourage one another on every Lord's day. Is that what it says? No, not just the first day of the week. Day after day, so as long as it's still called the day, so that none of you will be hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. That tells me very clearly, by being in fellowship with other brothers and sisters, that will help keep my heart from becoming hardened. How? Because guess what? How often have you talked to a brother or sister and they're just going through something really heavy, and the stuff they're spouting, the way they're talking about handling it is wrong. You ever have that situation? I had a situation, at least I had a situation like that today, where someone needed encouragement because they're going through a trial, and they could respond really wrong. They're trying to respond right, you know? And we're praying for that person to make sure their responses are right. It's very, very important now that we respond correctly, but encouragement. You know, how many times have you been checked by a brother or sister or you've checked a brother and sister? Hey, bro, be careful. Watch out. We're told a sister or brother, you need to forgive that person. You know, you need to love them, pray for them. We're always doing that. How many times in your relationship do, are you checked, right? Sometimes by the Holy Spirit, sometimes by your spouse, right? You got to watch your heart. You don't get bitter when you go through things. It's imperative that when you're dealing with children that you don't get bitter at them and that you don't exasperate them and that you don't provoke them to anger, and that you watch your own heart. But by being in fellowship with other brothers and sisters, your heart gets so encouraged to do what's right. And I think that's so important. You know, I fellowship with uh, 
brothers I, uh, in the fellowship. I, from time to time, I need to do it more often because I get so crazy busy. But a while back, I, I need to go there again. Uh, you know, fellowship with other pastors here in Simi Valley that are conservative evangelical. It's just an encouragement to, when I'm around them. And Lord, help me to go more, you know. But I just like, like I just out of town and back. I keep doing those kinds of things and juggling Marvel and everything else we're getting done with now. So, but I tell you, but I'm in fellowship all the time. I'm always in fellowship with, with brothers and sisters. And that's, I'm able to be encouraged and I'm able to encourage. In fact, look at what he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Again, notice he's talking about the heart. Hebrews 10, 23, he says this. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to what? Love and good deeds. Because guess what? We're supposed to serve the Lord, What? With love from a pure heart. That's Paul's goal, Paul's instructions. instruction, right? Love from a pure heart. Well, guess what? We're supposed to do with one another. Stimulate each other to what? Love and good works. So that means by being around other brothers and sisters, I'll be encouraged, you'll be encouraged to do good things from the heart. In fact, he says, love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we're supposed to be getting together and encourage one another, stimulate another, uh, and, and all the more, not less and less. Jesus, the, the signs of his coming are more than ever. We're supposed to get together more and more. And if you're getting together, you're saying, man, I'm making an effort to get together and, and seek the Lord together to grow. Praise God. But if you're tempted to just not be in fellowship as much, that is a temptation. That's not from the Lord. In fact, it's interesting. If you go to chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, this is where he says, in verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the what? See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. So we're supposed to, and this is the context of being in fellowship and seeking the Lord and, and, and accepting the Lord's discipline and Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And see that no one comes short of the grace of God, verse 15. So that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Then he goes to Esau, who had become bitter with Jacob at first, remember? And he sold his birthright. And then if, if you go on and you read the context, Esau sold his birthright, right? Who became the firstborn? Who became the firstborn? Jacob. Jacob's a picture of Jesus. And if you keep reading, which we don't have time to do in this chapter, it talks about Jesus is the, the, is the firstborn of the church now. He has a birthright. And now we have the birthright in him. We are joint heirs with him, amen? Stick to Jesus. Don't get bitter, amen? Uh, because we can get bitter and then I'll say you're not in fellowship anymore. You're not seeking Jesus. Then you're not growing. You know the enemy wants to isolate you from other believers because he wants to make your heart cold. He wants to harden your heart through the deceitfulness of sin. And that's... Not the easiest thing to do. So he tries to make your heart cold. The best way for him to do is to isolate you from other believers. Then by isolating you from other believers, there's no one to check you. When you're around other believers, how often do you get around certain believers and you're like, I'm convicted, man. <laughs> man, I, need to, I should live a holier life, man. Lord, help me to be like that guy or that gal. Amen? Praise God. And that's what the Lord does through being in fellowship with others. And some of the ways to do it. Matthew 26, 41. Here's another way. You keep your heart soft. Jesus says, pray so you don't enter in to temptation, amen? Be a prayer warrior, amen? Be, we're called to pray without ceasing. And we should be always praying, Lord, lead us not in temptation. Deliver us from evil. You know, I heard a brother uh, say that at the men's retreat. I said, amen, bro, because that's what I always say. I always say, pray the Lord's prayer, right? Constantly we need to be praying. Lead us not in temptation. Deliver us from evil. We need to stay in the word. How shall a young man keep his way pure? But by keeping according to thy word. Amen. The word is a mirror. Man, it shows us our heart. Ooh, man, oh, I need to change this. Oh, Lord, oh, I need to grow. Lord, help me not be like, oh, Lord, help me be like that. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. First uh, John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. Young man, you are strong and you have overcome the porneron. Porneron is evil one, Satan. You've overcome the evil one because the word of God abides in you. Is God's word abiding in you? If I run into someone and they haven't seen him for a long time and, and I say, hey, how you doing, man? Oh, praise God. Have you been in fellowship? No. When was the last time you read the word? Oh, it's been a couple years. That, the word of God's not abiding in that person. They're not overcoming the porn around. They're being overcome by the evil one. The Bible says don't let, don't overcome, or let, 
Don't be overcome of evil, Romans 12, but overcome evil with good. Amen? So the Bible says that we need to make sure we put on the new heart as well. When we come to Jesus and we, and we surrender to him, we are putting on, we are, we are getting a new heart, right? But then what's very interesting is now as we live daily, there is this battle between the flesh and the spirit. We're new creations. If anyone be in Christ, new creation. Ephesians 5.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Amen. So we're these new creations, but there's a spiritual war that goes on. And the Bible says in Romans 13.14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.24, put on the new man who was created according to God's righteousness and the holiness of truth. Wow. So what does it mean to put on this new man? Okay, go to, and we've just got a few more verses, so hang in there. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Romans 6, verse 6. This is the key. This is a big key I've been waiting to get to for you that fits with everything else. And I've been showing you the car, okay, so to speak, the, the new man. And now I want you to understand how one of the ways we can, are able to uh, drive this new, man, this, this new man or what makes it actually tick, so to speak. Verse 6, knowing this, that our what? Old self was, was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be what? Slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. How do we die? How are we freed from sin? It's no longer I that live, but Christ that liveth in me, right? Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, so somehow we've died with Christ. Think about that. We believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died for sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives for God. Even so, now look at verse 11. Look, look at verse 11. That's the key. Even so, consider yourselves to be what? Dead to sin. How do you consider yourself to be dead to sin? You remember the cross? You remember what happened at the cross? We're going to get a little bit deeper in a step. This is going to be a huge key for your spiritual victory. This is going to be a huge key for your spiritual victory. And if you're already enjoying it because you understand this key, praise God. If you haven't yet discovered this key, it's right here in Scripture. It's revealed for a reason. You're going to have, be able to have great victory. Listen to verse 11. Even so, count the old man dead or consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so you obey its lust. What's he saying? If you're dead to sin and you're counting the old man dead, it's the opposite of letting sin rule in your mortal body. So when you reckon that old man dead, you're not letting sin live in your mortal body. Understand that. Verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Well, how is the grace help me overcome sin? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. He paid for your sins, so you're forgiven. But when he died on the cross, he also gave you the key to have victory over sin. How so? Because when he died on the cross, he paid our penalty, so we're forgiven. Amen? But when he died on the cross, our old man, who we used to be before Christ, dead with him. Okay? He broke the power of the old man. It just like, well, we don't receive that brokenness until we trust Christ and, and look to him, amen? And then we follow him. Just like we don't receive the forgiveness of sins. Even though we died for our sins before we become Christians, we don't get forgiven until we put our faith in him, amen? So think of what's going on here. Here's how I want you to understand what's going on here, okay? When Jesus died on the cross, you know, uh, 2,000 years ago for us, he delivered us, and when we celebrate his victory, we have to understand something. Notice the word crucified right there. The word crucified right there. The word translated, it's translated, look at verse six, back to verse six. Knowing this, that our old man, our old self was crucified with him. That's how according to verse 11, we're allowed to consider the old man dead. That means who you used to be, that wicked person in rebellion to God. When he died on the cross, he took all the penalty that you deserved and your old man went with him. 
okay? Now when you come to Christ, you deny yourself, that old man. You say, no, I'm not living for that old man. I'm following him. And now I'm identifying with his resurrection and the new life that I have now is based on who, what Jesus did for me and paying for my sins, crucifying that old man. And now I share his newness of life and the life that I now live is by his power, amen? Now I think this is what's interesting is he broke, not only did he provide forgiveness of sins, but forgiven or the power to have victory over sin. And this is what I think is really interesting. I was praying, and this, is, this got more and more fascinating for me. I've told this story before once or twice, but it's such a powerful story. When I was in Romans 6, I was going to preach through the whole chapter, and it says that the old man is crucified with Christ, and it says that consider the old man dead. You know, I was praying about that. I was thinking about that. I was like, Lord, help me get my brain around what it means to reckon that old man dead that he's been crucified with Christ. What does that mean specifically, you know? And the commentaries, and I love commentaries, I just wasn't getting the help that I needed, that I wanted. I was like, there's something I'm, I want something that makes it so concrete for me, Lord. And not, I'm not kidding, and I didn't expect a dream, but that night I had a powerful dream. And in my dream, I was with my wife, and she was standing with me. And I had two wives. Both were my wife, Lisa. One was her old self laying there, in a comatose state on a bed. And the other one was Lisa, my wife, who knows Jesus. And the old one wasn't decayed and ugly or anything like that. It was just her old life before she was saved. And I knew that. I didn't, no one said that to me. I was just aware. And we were all aware that's the old Lisa. And her mom was there with us. And her mom, before Lisa was saved, lived vicariously through her to a degree. She loved it. Lisa went out and partied and, and danced and, you know, went and did whatever worldly girls do. And she would want to hear about all the stories. Almost like a dad would want to hear, how the football game when I missed it, man. Tell me, da, 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 give me, give me play by play. You know, she went play by play from Lisa smiling real big over there. She went play by play on how her nights went. And I knew in my dream that... That's the old Lisa, and that's a messed up Lisa, and I don't want that Lisa to get up. I praise God, thank you for this Lisa, Lord, that loves you, wants to do what's right. And her mom was encouraging us to wake the old Lisa up in my dream. And I was like, hey, but she's paralyzed. And I'm like, no, let's not do that. Lisa's good right now. And then I was diplomatic, but I was stern. <laughs> you know, Boom, I woke up, boom. And I'm like, and right away, Romans 6.6, 6, wow. And you know what I found out later? It wasn't even when I gave that study, I don't think. It was, I think, a couple years later, looking at that Greek word, crucified, in the King James, it's translated destroyed. You know what that word means? Listen to this. And this was so helpful. The Greek word is kartageo, K-A-R-T-E-G-E-O, kartageo in the Greek. And it doesn't mean annihilated, guys. It means inactive. It means, quote, unquote, paralyzed. Isn't that a trip? And I, and I wish I would have saw the meaning of that then. I would have tied it all together. But I said the dream was crazy. But you know what? That just underlined it even more. I went, wow. And that gave me a wonderful picture what it means that the old man's been rendered dead. Okay? So there's the old Joe laying there paralyzed. There's the old Lisa laying there paralyzed. Amen? There's the old Ivan there laying there paralyzed. There's the old Greg there laying there paralyzed. There's the old Mark there and Jim there and on and on throughout the entire. Lenny! Sorry, my wife hates it when I do this. Good to see you, bro. Love you, brother. I didn't recognize you were here. He's traveled a little ways, and praise God, Lenny uh, is doing much better because he was in dire straits, and he almost died as well at a certain point. Thank the Lord. Sonny Annie, good job. Lord use you guys. Praise God. Back to the message. That's why my wife hates it. Uh, <laughs> but hey, I said, hey, man, that's love from a pure heart. Okay, I didn't say that to her, but that's what that is. Love you guys. Anyway, you guys, your old man is there. But guess what? He's paralyzed. He can't get up. He's quadriplegic. He's dead. You're, that old man is dead from the head down. But you can let him rise. It says not to let him master you. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let him get back up. Count the old man dead, amen? How do I count him dead? How do I reckon that old man dead? Lisa and I, we talk. We weren't talking about it. It was more like like unworded communication in that dream. It was just like, no, don't let, let that old person up. We, we both recognize that our old person, Lisa, man, she was, you know, she was an AA, NA, and CA before I got saved. I definitely didn't want that old girl before she got saved. I definitely don't want that old girl back. And she didn't want that old man of mine back either. Believe me, okay? And we've had a blessed marriage because those old two people, those two people are dead in the grave, no longer to be risen by the grace of God. But guess what? 
enemy whispers, thou shalt not surely die or, you know, just have a little fun, you know. Oh, you're on vacation. You can, you can just get drunk a little bit. That's the old man wanting to come back. No, 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 no. Lisa and I just say, no, we're not drinking anymore. That's because we know what could happen. You say, wait a minute. I had a few sips and my old man didn't come back to life. I was getting drunk. Then I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking about that. I'm not getting drunk. Okay. So anyway, your old man wants to come back to life. Cardiac. Oh, he's paralyzed. He's quadri- it's quadriplegic. But guess what? He's not totally annihilated. And that's why Colossians, Ephesians, Ephesians 5.24, you know, other passages talk about putting off the old man and putting on the new. Continue to put more and more of the new man on. Amen? Continue to shed the things of the old man that are part of your old life that shouldn't be in your life anymore. You're supposed to count those things dead. We're crucified with Christ. Amen? So this is all really, really awesome. Frederick got it in his commentary uh, to Romans, which I just read recently, and I thought, oh, this is very, very interesting. Uh, you know, it's too long of a quote. I'll, I'll read it another time, but he talks about how the old man has been paralyzed, and, and that, uh, uh, but the reduction of it to powerlessness, the purpose of the moral execution, including the very fact of faith, is the deduction of the body of sin. It's been rendered powerless. It's been, uh, par- it's paralyzed now, uh, and we need to make sure that we reckon him and keep him dead. We don't let him get back up. But there's a war within, Galatians 5, 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so, after, so that you may not do the things that you please. So the flesh is in opposition to us, so we can't do what we please. But the Spirit's in opposition to the flesh and is more powerful. That's why he says, walk by the Spirit. You will not carry out the desires of the flesh, in verse 16. So we can't have victory by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So you have to overcome the flesh because guess what? He wants to resurrect his ugly head. How many of you know people that were walking, they love Jesus, they're excited, then they let that old man creep back in. And now they identify with the old person they used to be and their lives are just tr- tragic. It's very, very disgusting. Romans eight thirteen. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you through the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. No wonder the apostle Paul said, I beat my body down so that after I preach to others, I myself, what? Will not be rejected or cast away or a docamas. He beat his body down. Now your physical body is not your old flesh, okay? But uh, the body, remember he says, don't let the what, sin reign in your mortal body. That seems to be the point where the, that it manifests itself and wants to come back. And so you beat your body down, so to speak, not physically, literally, but you say, no, I'm not going to let sin reign in my mortal body. I'm going to, every day, so what, what's the key? Listen, the victory, forgiveness of sin comes through what? Jesus what? Death on the cross, right? Victory over the old man also comes what? Through Jesus' what? Death on the cross because that old man died with him. Amen. And that old man, when you come to faith, is rendered powerless, inactive, paralyzed. The only way he gets back up is if you let him back up. You're not going to wake up in the morning, whoa, I'm that old guy again. What happened? Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. No, you have to make a decision to let that old man reign in you again. And just simply say, no, I look to the cross for forgiveness, amen, and I look for the cross for power over my old man because Jesus broke that power through his death for my sins, and, he, and now, I, now I reign with him through his resurrection and through the power of his Holy Spirit, and I refuse to let that old man come back and ruin my life and ruin the lives of my wife or children or husband or whoever it is in your family or your brothers and sisters in Christ because I'm keeping him in the grave, amen, and I'm keeping Jesus enthroned in my heart, and I put it on the Lord Jesus Christ, amen? What's the key? Amen. That comes through faith in Christ, forgiveness, and comes through being empowered by the new man, which is empowerment of the Holy Spirit. God's law written in our hearts and the Holy Spirit empowering us to live the life that we could not live without him or without Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Amen. Praise God. Can we all please stand?